I tend to spend more time on what's not working well than, as they say, building on your strengths. I, I figure when we get it right, that'll take care of itself. And where my time needs to be better spent are the areas that need improvement. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Um, Today, I'm talking with CJ Rapp, who is the founder and CEO of Karma Wellness Water, which is, as you can tell by the name, an awesome brand of water that is good for you and has been in the space for a long time, even before it was really cool to have a wellness water. So CJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being with us today. Christy, thank you for the opportunity and nice to be with you. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about when you founded the brand and what the idea was at the time? Oh, my goodness. So the brand and the concept dates back to 2007 at the time. And maybe we'll chat a little bit about this. We were I owned a an energy drink called Jolt. In fact, it was regarded as the first ever energy drink in America. We were five years before Red Bull and Monster and some of those. And that is within itself a story. And even going back further than that, I'm a second generation beverage guy. My father was in beverages before me. So we've been doing this a real long time, probably far too long for your show to allow. But the inspiration came for karma came from the time of my life when I was traveling extensively throughout Asia. There was a health and wellness movement in Asia. It came in all different forms of of foods and beverages. And so that in 2007 was the moment in time that we said, let's go into the health and wellness space. And it also had a lot to do with the name. We just felt the name Karma was a real good place to be. It was a name or term that is universal, and its basic meaning is understood worldwide. So we borrowed the equity of the well-established understanding of what Karma is. So that was a big departure from Jolt. I mean, what an opposite, right? So Oh, what? yeah. My, my friends say in just, of course, that I wimped out, right? We went from being... <laughs> the naughty guys in the category to being the, you know, the, the nice guys in the category. Yeah. So, so no, a total departure, you know, as a purebred marketer, it's fundamentally the same. You look for the white space. If you call it, you look for the openings, you try to figure out what needs are not being met. So yeah. from that standpoint, you know, again, going back to my jolt days, which is in the mid eighties, we felt that beverages needed that sense of thrill And also that there was not an invigorating beverage other than coffee. And a lot of people don't like coffee. And so that was the opening as we saw it. And clearly we were right because the energy drink space today is massive. And so others did a better job at marketing it than we did at Jolt. But we had a great ride with that brand. You know, we had it in over 20 countries at its peak. And so that was not a disappointment. That was a great ride for over 20 years. So coming back to your question, it was the same thing. We looked at the space and said, where isn't the industry delivering on its promise? And that's where it really comes back to wellness. They, the industry has created products that look healthy, sound healthy at surface level. They've got good names and packaging, but when you read the ingredients, they fall short on delivering that promise. Karma is unique and different from everything that's out there today in health and wellness. Our big point of difference is the dispensing cap 
what sits on top of a bottle of Karma is a plastic dispensing cap that hosts all of the ingredients, frankly, other than the water. So all the additives, you know, the vitamins, the antioxidants, we have a probiotic line, we have a vitamin line and soon to have a CBD line. So all of the key active ingredients are in the cap. And then the consumer, when they buy the product, they actually push down on our cap, infuse all the goodness out of the cap and into the water. And we say it transforms water into wellness. And that's the physical transformation phase. And why that should mean something to people is what a lot of folks don't quite understand yet is that many active ingredients, probiotics being a good example, vitamins being an example, they deteriorate when they're in liquid form. So a ready-to-drink beverage with vitamins, those vitamins deteriorate over time at a more accelerated rate than most people would normally think. And it's similar with probiotics. So take a kombucha, There are many probiotics, billions of probiotics the day that the kombucha is brewed, but by the time you purchase it from the store and consume it, it may only have about a third of the probiotic cultures that are on the label. So that's a long way of explaining that our cap technology delivers better stability for the active ingredients. And because the consumer infuses those ingredients moments before consumption, at the end of the day, what we're delivering is a higher rate of potency and therefore optimal health benefits. So how did you come to that understanding? Because you decided you wanted the wellness space was white space and you wanted to do something there. How did you get to that really sophisticated technology that's so different? I mean, there isn't really another brand that I can think of that that's doing that. There have been a few that have tried, but these dispensing caps are very complicated. They're just not as easy to get two aspects right. You have to get the technical aspects right so that the cap does protect the ingredients, but you also have to make it sort of simple and easy to use so that it's not a nuisance for the consumer. Yes. Yeah, the decision to use the dispensing cap actually delayed the launch of Karma by about three years. You know, I started by explaining that the Karma concept came back in 2007. And initially, it was going to be a wellness shot. Um, You know, there's five-hour energy in a shot bottle, you know, a two-ounce shot. We were going to be a wellness shot. But what happened at that time is the FDA made a ruling, and they, while they didn't fine any of the major beverage companies, they gave them a pretty strong slap of the hands and slap of the wrist and said, look, your labeling is misleading. We've done studies on your active ingredients and what your labels are claiming. Say, for example, 250 milligrams of of vitamin C. And what the FDA found out was that those ingredients have deteriorated and they're no longer in those bottles. So when that ruling came out, the message was, hey, you have a problem and there's two potential solutions. One was put preservatives in it Mm -hmm. so that you could stabilize the active ingredients. But we felt that would be a wrong choice because, you know, if you're in the health and wellness space, you're trying to avoid preservatives. So you can carry like a non-GMO label. So where we ended up on this, again, after three years was let's create a piece of packaging that, as I said earlier, hosts all the active ingredients until the consumer infuses them. And so that's what took from 2007 until we ultimately launched in late 2010 or early 2011. And so tell me how, when you launched, how'd you do it? Like, where was your distribution? The DTC wasn't as big of a deal as it is now. Right. So you weren't doing as much online business, I would imagine. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of different ways I can answer that question. So I guess the shortest thing is we started in our home market, which is in upstate New York and Rochester. A lot of folks based in the Northeast have now come to know and appreciate the Wegmans grocery chain. 
Yeah. Um, Wegmans is just a top shelf grocer, and they always have a lot of high, a lot of great products, both innovative and premium. And we launched Karma, as I said, in late 2010, early 2011, in the Wegmans chain only. Not that we didn't want to do business with more people and more retailers, but we just felt that was a good way to get some early learnings from the consumers. And so it was a controlled rollout. And the other aspect of that, if I'm being really honest, is just, you know, restraints and capital. So we're a small privately held company with an unproven piece of packaging and an unproven unknown beverage concept. And so it wasn't easy raising money even though we are the the management team are well versed in beverages, there was a lot of un, admittedly there was a lot of unknowns. So you know the overused term of a shoestring budget. Well, we've lived that and have been living that for the first eight years, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it. But up until the time that we signed an agreement with Constellation Brands, the alcohol giant, you know we were literally going hand in mouth, or as they say, living the proverbial uh, shoestring budget. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting, one that you decided, or maybe you just didn't think it was the right time to raise capital until much later, but but I think there's a lot to be said as a new brand for focusing your efforts and really understanding how you do in smaller geographies or one chain like you decided to do before you spread yourself so thin that all of a sudden you're everywhere and you don't know what's going on and you're selling in some places and not selling in others and really can't figure out why. So I think there's there's a lot to be said when you're a startup um, or an early stage brand to being focused. You know, you bring up a really great point, Christy, that, and, I, and I'm being honest when I say it wasn't necessarily by choice. In other yeah. words, we, we just didn't have the money. And when you don't have the money, you can't spend the money. But your bigger point is, and we've seen this in competing brands and other beverages in different spaces, is a company is fortunate enough to raise significant amounts of money. Significant could mean 10 million up to 50 million. Yes. And understandably, they get very excited at the beginning and they want to make a great splash, you know, a huge splash when they roll out. And we've seen those companies spend, you know, 80% of that capital raise in the first year that they're in business. I can rattle through five brands that really suffered as a result because it's like anything in life. And in particular in business, you seldom get it right the first time and you have to apply those learnings as quickly as you can to make your product better. It's, it's a never ending pursuit of excellence. And if you spend everything all up in front, then it, you know you don't have the money to come back with a new and improved version of whether it's your packaging, your liquids, your messaging. So you know, there's a, as you understand more than anyone, that there's a lot of different factors that lead to a brand's success. And you have to get most or many of them right, or you're going to struggle. Yeah. I like what you said, and I don't know if I've heard it put exactly that way about seldom getting it right the first time. And that's okay. Like you have to expect those things to happen. But if you have spent all of your money or you've over-invested or you've over-innovated, then what happens next? How do you go and raise money again? It's hard. It's oh, it's almost impossible because yeah. you know the investors will say, "Look, you didn't get the results. We, you know, we gave you the benefit of the doubt, and you know the results speak for themselves. It's disappointing, and so therefore we're not interested in in investing more or investing in the first time." So you're right that that's a big gamble to spend a significant amount of the money you raise all up front, and we would not have done that if we were afforded that luxury. But even today, when we do have a strategic partner and we're growing the business, part of the reason they were interested in us is that we showed a discipline 
you know, over the last eight years of growing incrementally. And you're right, there's a lot to be said for that approach as well. Was this the first time you actually raised capital with Constellation? They were your first investor? It's the first strategic investor for sure. So Karma was started through a group of angel investors in Rochester. Again, I, I provided the beverage experience in the, in the core concept, and I too am an investor in, in Karma. And so we began with about 10 private investors was where we began. The common term, of course, is called angel investors. Mm-hmm. And then we opened it up for a second round of capital that included high net worth individuals in some of the major cities in the Northeast, most notably New York City. And that got us to the second phase. And then again, in the third phase, which was about eight years into the process, we captured the attention of Constellation Brands. And I don't want to digress, but part of their interest, so Constellation Brands, a lot of people may not recognize the name initially, but they're the owners of great brands in the United States like Corona Beer. And they own the Mandavi, great brand of wine, the Mandavi brand. And they own Rufino, the famous brand out of Italy, wine out of Italy and many other brands, and Svedka in the vodka category. So no doubt that their business model is out in the field of alcoholic beverages, most notably beer, wine, and spirits. Yeah. But they, previous to getting involved in Karma, they invested a significant amount of money, billions of dollars, in a cannabis grower called Canopy Growth, based in Canada, because they ultimately see a new category of beverages that are cannabis related, primarily with the THC as their active ingredient. And so again, I'm oversimplifying it, but there'll be a a spirits category, you know, obviously you have your bourbons and your vodkas, gin and so on. Then you have your wine category and everybody understands wine. You have a beer category. And while there are many facets within all of these, like in beer, you have craft beer, you have import beers, you have, you know, mainstream beers. There's a lot of different types within, but still you have spirits, wine and beer. And earlier I mentioned that it'd be a fourth category and that's the THC category for consumables, most notably beverages. So they, Constellation Brands have bought into the science behind Karma and the usefulness of our cap and how we can better protect THC in this instance and also CBD. And for that reason, Karma became their first ever venture or investment in a non-alcoholic beverage company. That's very exciting to hear about. I spoke to someone from a company called Tinley's. Do you know that brand? I do not. They're based in California and they are a cannabis beverage company and they can't sell across state lines. So they can only sell out of dispensaries right now. That's right. But it's a really interesting category. And I think once it's legal to sell, it's going to be, it just feels like it's going to be tremendous, tremendous. Yeah, I think there could be some confusion at the onset. People hear cannabis and they immediately, and understandably, they immediately go to marijuana and they immediately go to what is called THC, which is the psycho element of it, right? Right, right. And I understand all of those and they're sort of their assumptions are understood and actually pretty accurate. However, when food processors and beverage companies now refer to cannabis, there are two very distinct categories the THC side of it, again, which will be sort of the recreational side. And then there's the very different than that will be the side that Karma will be in on, which is the CBD side. I'm talking about the Karma brand. And CBD offers a lot of health benefits, most notably anti-inflammatory benefits to it. And so anti-inflammatory plays to wellness. And so that's why later this year, we'll be launching our third product line, which will be the Karma CBD line. Exciting. That's super exciting. 
Yeah, we're excited. It's been a long time coming, you know, CBD and for that matter, THC are seemingly the most anticipated consumer <laughs> uh, categories ever, right? And we've been waiting, everyone, so. everyone's been waiting for an FDA ruling, which we still don't have. Everyone's watching what the individual states are doing, because if, if the feds, meaning the FDA, don't make a decision, then it gets left up to each state to try to decide what they want to do. And so it's a little bit of the, you know, the tail wagging the dog thus far. But the minute the FDA makes a ruling in it, by all indications, they're leaning in favor of it. They see it as obviously a new way to generate revenue, tax revenue for the for the federal government. The states see it as a good form of revenue for them. So we wouldn't be the only one that would be shocked if it's anything other than favorable and full steam ahead. I mean, if it stays at the state level, it's just a nightmare from a distribution perspective. Right. right. You touched on some of the legalities, right? You, if it's only at the state level, then to your point earlier, you cannot necessarily cross state lines. Yeah. In today's day and age, no matter what product you're talking about, if it's a consumer goods, 99% of these are not made in every state. They're generally made in one oh, or yeah. several states, Absolutely. right? And yet yeah. sold in all 50 states, which yeah. means they do cross state lines. I and mean, that's the way commerce is done in the consumer goods category. So that explains, I hope, to people why you need an FDA or a federal ruling. Yeah. So I was going to ask what's next for you, but you already said the CBD product, but what, what are the challenges? Like, are there, is there anything that you feel like is challenging that's coming up for you guys? Is post COVID going to be harder than COVID for you or? So COVID, you know, we have been very, I'm talking about strictly the trends of karma have been very favorable as a result of COVID. And we were talking off air a little bit. So we're very mindful that COVID has been a tragedy for many. I mean, there are a lot of lost lives and there are many serious issues associated with COVID. But at the end of the day, I'm just sharing with you that one of the learnings were that consumers are paying much more attention to immune support and anything that bolsters their immunity system is is of renewed interest to them. And so that played well for Karma because we've been talking about supporting immunity, you know, since the brand was launched. And so for that reason alone, I'm thankful that we remain true to who we were. We were not opportunistic by any means. We were simply, the best way to describe it is suddenly our messaging better resonated because the market market moved. The market moved to, you know, survival. People were worried about their health and they wanted to pay attention to their immune support. So we were fortunate with that for sure. The challenges for us going forward, I'm guessing is going to be a very crowded space for CBD. As I mentioned, it's it's almost two years too late from the standpoint that, you know, everyone thought they would be launched in 2019, yeah. but the FDA, you know, didn't make a ruling. Then it became the FDA took a step back because it was an election year in 2020. So they didn't make a ruling. And for reasons unknown, they still haven't made an official ruling in 21. So there's an awful lot of talented, smart, well-capitalized companies poised and ready to go with their CBD products. And I suspect that from a consumer point of view, it's going to be an overcrowded space very quickly. And then only time will tell which brands and which categories seem to do the best within the CBD sector. And so that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Anything you would like to share as advice? I mean, you've given really good advice throughout this interview, but if there are entrepreneurs that are thinking about starting up a brand, is there anything you would say, do this or don't do this or watch out for this? You know, some of them are cliche, as I said earlier, they've been over, they've been, you know, they've been said before, but many times when that happens, they're said repeatedly because they're true. And so 
a big contrast from my first startup, which was the Jolt brand that we had so much fun with, right? I mean, that brand had, had a sense of irreverence. And so it appealed to a lot of fascinating people. And again, I was in my 20s at the time. So I could talk for days on end about the great experiences I had with, you know, rock and roll stars and, and uh, the Hollywood crowd. And we just had a lot of fun with that brand. But at that time, I didn't have the right dynamics on a board of directors. I had some people that I trusted, and I don't have any regrets in that sense, but I'm trying to get at the point that you're asking. And that is with Karma, we have a very diverse board of directors that offer genuine counsel. They're looking at everything pragmatically, in some respects, with a degree of skepticism, because again, they're helping us understand how important it is to be committed to excellence all along the way. And we touched on, you know, again, the many factors. So in consumer groups, and in our case, the beverage, is the name right? Is the font right? Does that match the name? And does the color of the label connect with the consumer? And then, of course, there's the liquids, which means the taste. Is the taste right? Is the size of the bottle right? Is the shape of the bottle right? And then you get into, of course, the, all the consumer communication points. And today, that's uh, more complex than ever because you have traditional advertising, you have digital advertising as you know better than anyone, and you have social media, you have influencers. And so all of those components and forms of communication ultimately need to work holistically. And that's a big challenge for, in our case, of a beverage. So so that's an ongoing challenge. And we revisit those topics, I can promise you, almost daily. And just because, again, I'm not a young man and I've been through a lot in the beverage industry, I tend to spend more time on what's not working well than, as they say, building on your strengths. I, I figure when we get it right, that'll take care of itself. And where my time needs to be better spent are the areas that need improvement. That's good advice, just to stuff to think about. And I mean, you have so much experience. I think that your experience with Jolt probably taught you way more lessons than you even knew you were learning at the time. You're right. It was the learning. It was sometimes I wasn't aware that the learnings would offer benefits over time and absolutely true. So there's the inside the beverage industry benefits. Frankly, we know who to do business with and for that matter, who not to do business with. So we avoid a lot of the landmines out there that can trip up some really good companies and products if they didn't have that experience. And so that's with Karma. We also had built a reputation as a management team. And again, this comes back to some of those old cliches. We were always honorable at Jolt. We were never the largest. We didn't mean a lot to any one distributor or retailer, but they came to appreciate that we did what we say we would do. We always honored every deal that we ever made. And so we walked away with a good reputation and that paid big dividends. So when we launched Karma, the people were like, look, we're focused on your product. We know who you are. We know you mean well. We know that you're honorable. So let's just stay focused on your product. And that that helped us greatly with the launch of Karma. Do you think that that still matters? I mean, there's so many brands launching and there's so many people and so many investors and so many distributors. Does that still matter to people? It doesn't necessarily matter to the consumer because they don't know no, the backstory. Right. And for that matter, they don't care. I do think it matters. In the beverage industry, it matters particularly because of the distributor class of trade. So beverages... A lot of people don't realize you have like the brew, say, let's take the beer category. You have a brewery like Anheuser-Busch or Coors Brewing, and then their customers are these distributors or wholesalers, as they're called, 
So all around in all 50 states, the customer of the major brewer are the distributors, and then the distributors sell to the retailers. Mm -hmm. So they call that a three-tiered system, brewer to distributor to retailer, hence the phrase three-tiered system. So within the industry, your reputation still means a lot. At the consumer level, I would agree with you that it doesn't. The consumer simply wants to know the name of your product, the benefits of your product, and whether that resonates with them. Yeah. And then I have a question for you that's interesting, at least to me. So you had a company called Jolt, and then did you sell it or did it? We sold it to a private equity company who ultimately kind of botched the brand. And and instead of sort of carving out its own space within a bigger category called energy drinks, they just abandoned everything that we sort of, it took us 20 years to build. And and so it it didn't end up being a brand that, that had staying power. Yeah. But you decided to do it again. What made you just like, are you a serial entrepreneur? Would you say that? Or are you, is this it for you? Stubborn, <laughs> for sure. And, you know, Jolt, while it's a great brand, and I, again, I, I don't mean to digress, as I said earlier, but once in a while, people, I'm traveling on airplanes again, and though I still have a little sign with the original Jolt logo on it, like a keychain thing, and people see it, and they'll literally go into a Jolt story for 15 yeah. minutes, you know, and how their mothers were mad at them, or their teacher got mad at them because yeah. they drank a can of Jolt. Yep. And they all have sort of their own jolt moment, which just sounds crazy, but it was. And I, that was such a big part of me. And I nurtured that brand for so long that I, you know, I fell in love with the brand. And as I shared with you in Camder, the ending of that wasn't the ending that we wanted. And yes, that served and continues to serve as inspiration to get karma across the finish line. And karma across the finish line for us is to is to get this brand large enough where it actually makes sense for a larger company like Constellation to take it over because at that point, they'll make it an enormous brand. Yeah, cool. Awesome. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? I mean, this has been incredible. I bet you have three more podcasts of great stories at least in you. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We'll save that for another time. No, I think we covered a lot of ground, Christy, and I appreciate it. I'm sorry if some of my my answers or responses were long-winded, but... Oh, it's good. Yeah, no, people want to know how to do it. They don't, people are just, you know, we're all guessing half the time. That's right. That absolutely we are. And as I said, you learn from the mistakes. And I wanted to share some of our mistakes along the way so that hopefully that if anyone's listening to this, that they get something out of it. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you on. Christy, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.